Blog Talk Radio. From Washington, D.C., this is In My Opinion with Kara Lye. And the In My Opinion team, Stephen Reese, Taquan Etheridge, Brandon Andrews, Trelane Patrick, and Terry Jones. Our mission is to educate by providing stimulating conversations. We may have a difference of opinion, but we are united for change. Listen to the show on the go by downloading from iTunes. Also, like us on Facebook at In My Opinion TV. Uh, doesn't differ much from 
what the uh, recording just stated. Other than um, I focus primarily on cultural components um, and the cultural and social consequences of gentrification uh, for those that are both gentrifying and those that are displaced in some regard. For me personally, I am uh, originally from D.C., um, and I currently live in a gentrified area. And so uh, it has impacted uh, me from being one who has participated as a gentrifier um, and then also uh, seeing the benefits, I mean, not the benefits, the, um, the consequences on my own children in terms of education. Okay, and how about you, Tristan? Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Thank you for having me tonight. Um, I'd say that gentrification fundamentally is just as what was defined in the, in the clip. And it's a real general term um, that I think has has obtained a negative connotation or stigma, and that's what we're dealing with. So, um, Tristan, I don't know. Uh, we're getting some feedback from your end. If you have your computer on, you probably need to turn that down. I actually don't have a computer in front of me. Okay, I don't know what that is. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go is ahead. it better? Yeah, much better. Okay, great. So, so the, the, let's just discuss, you know, from, from my perspective, the stigma associated with gentrification because I don't disagree with uh, Dr. Alexander nor with the clip. Um, it's a very general term that I think associates uh, the influx of wealth in a once dilapidated area, uh, either through development or otherwise. But uh, the, the negative connotation that I think exposes uh, race and maybe perhaps poor planning uh, or a lack of opportunities for those who were at some at some point the primary residents of this particular neighborhood or gentrified neighborhood or gentrifying neighborhood. That's the issue that we're dealing with. And in my personal experience with that, frankly, as one who might be presumed to be a gentrifier, um, I would disagree because I'm not, for example, that influx of wealth. I'm not an example of an influx of wealth. I just am an example of someone who who's not been a part of that neighborhood uh, you know, for tens of years, but I come in as a homeowner and as a contributor, and and frankly, you know, that stigma doesn't apply, but yet it's still felt. So, you know, I, I think at some point, um, dealing with the stigma head on, without trying to identify uh, how the race is played out in the situation, but really trying to figure out how people are living, is is what's going to determine what gentrification truly is and its impact and its effect on our on our neighbors and residents. How about thank you. How about you, Shyla? Um, hello everyone. Um uh uh and it's an it's an secret empowerment DC. It's actually empower DC. I don't know clarify that. Um but okay so um well empower DC defines um gentrification as uh, the process whereby absentee owners and profiteers collude with government or other forces to, one, speculate on the future value of land over a period of decades, allowing blight and divestment until such time as the market and social conditions support an influx of new wealthier residents coming into the area and pushing out long-time poor residents of the area. Um, these landowners, which do include government, 
They respond by turning rental units into condos, turning public housing units into so-called mixed-income housing, and converting private property use for profit. So that's what we see gentrification as uh, at Empower DC. And I see it myself. I'm a person that um, feels threatened by the gentrification going on in DC. I'm from the um, very low income bracket. And I see every day the push out of people that look just like me and the influx of wealthier, single, and white people. It's not always white, it's black too, but I, that's what we see gentrification as. Thanks, Charlotte. I wanted to, before we go to the, the next question, um, our other co-host is on the line also, Brandon Andrews. Just wanted to make sure that I announced that he's on the line when he um, asked for feedback. You there, Brandon? I am. All right, great. Um, you have a question? Sure. I have a question to either one of the hosts. Typically, uh, I just throw a question out there and look. I'm going to ask it first. Um, the American dream is characterized by people investing in themselves, uh, investing in delayed gratification, getting an education, and, and essentially bettering their situation, which also includes home ownership. How does the issue of gentrification impact the, the attainment of the American dream. Uh, for instance, with uh, Ms. Point, Dr. Moore's point, how is it a negative for someone to, to buy property in your neighborhood if they're living out what they consider to be the American dream? And I, I think I'll start with Ms. Point, Dr. Moore, then we can move on to whomever else wants to, to jump at the mic. Um, I, I believe that, you know, someone can strive for the American dream and someone can have, you know, the quote-unquote American dream of, you know, uh, owning property and uh, being self-sufficient and not being not having to depend on subsidies and so forth, um, if that is someone's American dream. Um, however, for someone to live that American dream, I don't feel like someone who is in um, a disenfranchised situation should be pushed out because of that because everyone is not going to have that. We have to be realistic in, in, in the world, in Washington, D.C., in the nation. There are people who are disenfranchised. There are people who, who don't have jobs, who can't work, who are disabled, who are on public assistance, who do have addiction problems. For whatever reason that the person cannot get that quote-unquote American dream, that does not mean that I should be forced out or pushed out or scattered around or treated any kind of way because I don't have that. I just have just as much right as somebody who does have that or want that American dream. So there should be a place in this city, and there should be a place, period, for someone in that situation to have a roof over their head and be treated with the same amount of dignity. Right. I want to make sure that we focus on the the, 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 the home ownership portion as well. We're going to yeah. back talk about the, the phenomenon of quote-unquote pushing people out. So I'm going to go ahead and go to the next one and go with Tristan and perhaps then we can go to Damien and whomever else wants to speak on the issue. Well, I think, A, I agree with Ms. Pondexter. Absolutely everyone needs um, to have a roof over their head. I think that what she's saying is that what's missing is the opportunity to have that. Folks are truly disenfranchised. You fall on your feet. And there are things just to keep you barely afloat. And 
that doesn't a lot of times include home ownership, uh, which is the key denominator in gentrification. Frankly, the folks who are at risk of being forced out or not being beneficiaries of the influx of either wealth and or stability of a neighborhood are those who are not homeowners. And whether it be African-Americans moving out into suburban neighborhoods or suburban communities and families moving into urban areas, either way, uh, home ownership is essential to your stability, your wealth, your own uh, uh, benef- benefit from from any kind of uh, – growth in the community and development, and, and especially when it comes to urban areas. So as much as I agree with her, I'd like to identify that a opportunity is missing for a lot of folks who are uh, disenfranchised or are uh, not empowered right, to, to, to take advantage of different things that are available to them. And that's one of the things I'd like to mention later in the program. Uh, and then the other part is is you know, frankly, we're talking about folks who are renting because if you own your own home, it's very difficult for someone to force you out, regardless of where you live. I'd like to chime in. Um, I actually agree as well. Um, I think the thing that I would add in there is that the concept of ownership um, extends, for me at least, when I look at gentrification, to the social ties in the community. And when someone loses their home, they're not just losing the physical property. They're losing social connections and ties to that community that might be meaningful for them. And to me, that's a, uh, an equally uh, detrimental consequence uh, to any form of gentrification when, uh, when people are pushed out. Um, I think another component um, along the lines of home ownership are the renters as well. Uh, to what degree are renters impacted, uh, whether it may be through um, rising uh, rental prices and so forth whether they're, to the places where they're actually displaced. Um, in terms of the American dream, um, I think it depends on uh, what we mean by that now. Um, that concept and ideal might mean something very different these days to those that might be proponents or uh, opponents of gentrification. Um, do we have a particular definition that we're working with on American dream? You brought up an interesting point regarding the um, homeowners being pushed out or pushed into uh, another area. Um, So my question back to you is, does the urban planners have an obligation to provide affordable housing for those people? Um, You know, I'm I'm split on that one, to be honest. Um, I think that in the case, of those who have been displaced or who are low income, um, which is the background that I also come from, um, I think when you're in that situation, um, you may uh, 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 lean towards, yes, we need to have urban planners to, um, to interject and, uh, and in some cases to, uh, to fight, uh, if they're activists as well, uh, for the right um, of home ownership and uh, make sure that we stay in communities. Um, if we look at it um, on a broader scale, um, maybe more economic, maybe more capitalistic, my perspective might change a bit, um, depending on um, how we look at capitalism in terms of the freedom to be able to 
uh, trade, buy and sell, um, and the cultural norms and rules that are associated with that. In that regard, you might, uh, I think you can make an argument in the case that um, urban planners might be a hindrance in that regard, depending on which way you look at it. I'd like to chime in and say not only do the urban planners have a responsibility to do that, absolutely, but as do all the other potential stakeholders who are involved with either uh, investing in and reaping benefits from gentrification urban development. Because, frankly, you know, new urbanism, which is, a, is not a new concept, but it relies on mixed income. It relies on... Uh, a really solid urban planet that doesn't benefit one group. And to prevent having another bubble, frankly, it's just much more economic to own your own home in D.C. than it is to rent. So what sense would it make for people to be forced out for any reason when they could have the opportunity to buy? So why wouldn't the urban planners, why wouldn't the city have a vested interest in ensuring that Long-term, long-term residents or even long-term renters have an opportunity to move on up that ladder, own some property, own your home, be a be a stakeholder, be involved in the process, be a benefactor of rising property values. Well, Tristan, but if if that, that neighborhood is gentrifying, how is it possible for uh, a current resident resident to own a home in a in an area that the home prices are well above their income levels? Does that not simply displace them once again from those community ties that Dr. Alexander mentioned earlier? Affordable housing is is the answer, I think, and it's the way you do it. The way it's been done, aside from what, you know, HUD money and, and things of that nature, but what the city does in its urban planning efforts when you develop your affordable housing programs, one thing I can tell you for sure is that as long as these programs have been around, they have not been advertised very well, and very few people, even those who have been long-term renters in the city, know about it. So how can you expect people to take advantage of it and beat the gentrification, be a part and a stakeholder in their neighborhood before they're forced out because someone else owns where they live? That's what I mean when I say having a interest. If I could say, uh, to answer to answer the question, should the should the government provide affordable housing? Absolutely, the government should absolutely provide affordable housing for people to live because everyone does not have the resources, everyone does not have the income, everyone does not have what it takes to be one a homeowner and to afford the market rate rent. I mean, that's just just, just obvious. So it is the government's responsibility to respond to the numbers, to the trends, that people cannot afford to pay these exorbitant amount of prices, that someone should up for rent. Someone should be able to pay 30% of their income to have a roof over their head because otherwise they won't be able to survive. If the city doesn't want to pay a livable wage, minimum wage is $8.25. If the city doesn't want to pay a livable wage, you're basically telling me I'm good enough to ring up your order at McDonald's. I'm good enough to do the things that it takes to run this city, but I'm not good enough to be able to afford to pay rent in this city, which is absolutely ridiculous and disgusting. So, yes, the government should provide and developers should provide affordable housing with a safety net attached so that people will have a roof over their head and there won't be more homeless people in the street and there won't be more people on the waiting list waiting for housing. Housing is a human right, not just a right for somebody with a certain income or a right for somebody who can 
own a home because the majority of the people I know cannot own a home, do not have the resources to own a home. Now, there are programs missing. I believe in co-ops. I believe in, in those sort of things. And there are programs that are missing, you know, for people like me to be able to own a home. But until we have those programs in place where people like me can own homes, then we definitely do need affordable housing. And the way the city is, the direction it's going in, they are cutting affordable housing when we need it more than ever now. You made, you made some interesting points, and I was wondering how you feel about the role of private sector businesses playing a role in the availability of affordable housing. Um, I, as far as the proof, as far as what I've read, as far as uh, WAMU just did a series on developers, I don't like the way that the city uh, is handling developers providing affordable housing because they are not providing traditional, true, affordable housing for people, again, like myself. I'm a person with four children. I need a lot of bedrooms. These developers get these deals and they're supposed to, uh, in the culinary zoning or whatever, they're supposed to provide a certain amount of affordable housing. These are usually one-bedroom or two-bedroom studio apartments, and they are not affordable for me. Because of the influx of new people that have come in, the median income is way higher. So these affordable units are affordable for someone making $60,000 a year, not for someone like me making 32000 or my next-door neighbor who is on public assistance or another neighbor down the street who was on disability. It's not or who has five, six children with her. The developers are not doing that. So yeah, they should, but they're not. Yeah, I, I if think, I may. I'm sorry. Who was that? Okay. Tristan, if I may add to that and 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 dissent just a little bit, because the city, you know, it, it, well, not the city, but excuse me, there are nonprofit housing affordable housing developers in our city who do work tirelessly to to build and and develop affordable homes for folks that you're mentioning, um, Ms. Poindexter. That's MANA, that's Mikasa, that's Habitat for Humanity. And, you know, one of the, the issues that I know that they have, because, frankly, I've worked with them on a bunch of different projects. I even bought a home from one of the, uh, the developers. That is uh, that they don't receive enough support from the city in terms of, uh, really reaching out. So the, the programs that the city has had for so long have to be expanded, especially considering now that the city has a little bit of money to spend. Uh, it, it absolutely has to be expanded to include more people who are less fortunate uh, because the reality is that people like that that you've mentioned can buy a home and should be able to buy a home, right? And and we've got to do what we, what we need to do as uh, taxpayers to demand that the city provide opportunity for these folks. Otherwise, you know, those who are developers are going to do what they are in business to do, and that's to, to make money. Right. I don't think there's anything wrong with the, the city making money, but the city is not the only uh, culprit that's in on the quote-unquote gentrification game. There's also federal programs nationwide whereby public housing stock has been converted to mixed-income stock. And I'm speaking specifically about the Hope Six project that HUD currently has on, whereby they're tearing down the, the public housing as it stands, and they're replacing that with mixed income housing. And with the mixed income housing, a certain percentage, I think it's 20 to 30 percent, goes to those financially disadvantaged people that, that we were speaking about earlier. 
and the, the top 20 to 30% go to uh, homeowners who can afford to buy their properties at market price. And the middle is on a sliding scale. So with that being said, do you guys think that this would actually address the gentrification problem and provide some type of balance between the city's desire to increase their coffers without displacing the financially disadvantaged? And I guess I can start with, uh, with uh, Dr. Alexander, then we can move from there. Um, I think it's inconclusive. I mean, uh, to be honest, there's been numerous studies on the HOPE program, and all of them have varying results. Um, many of them are faulted and flawed primarily because of their methods for conducting their research. Um, so, I, I, and overall, I think it's actually inconclusive. Um, I, I do take issue, though, with when families are displaced um, and to what degree when they may get a voucher or whatever it may be, and they may move to another community, in some cases the percentages have been pretty high in terms of um, displaced individuals being choosing in some cases, maybe they're forced because there's not as many options, but pick a neighborhood that might actually be detrimental for their health um, and, may not, and may also be no better than where they came from before. However, on the other side, the numbers in some reports also show that uh, – that some people are able to actually find better housing. Um, so I don't know if I'm missing the mark in terms of answering the question, but uh, for me, the HOPE program is uh, it's still rather inconclusive in terms of its successes. I, I can't uh, disagree with Dr. Alexander. Um, I think he's right. It's very difficult to determine its success. I think we can agree that it's done something, it's done some, you know, whether people think it's good or bad, I would like to identify one particular uh, flaw, I'd say, of the program. When Congress in 1998 decided to abandon the one-for-one rule, that means to replace the unit that's being demolished uh, with, you know, another unit, renovated, brand new, you know, very livable, I think that hurt the displaced families. It, it, in fact, perhaps contributed to displacing even more families. And I'd like to give this particular example. In Ivy City, one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city, or had been one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city for the longest, uh, four-bedroom bunker, excuse me, four-unit bunker, that means four families were at one point in this, in this building, gutted out, renovated, done with. I'm not going to say that they had HUD money to do it, but I will say that the property right now is worth half a million dollars. It's on the market for half a million dollars in one of the poor cities in the neighborhood and not but one family can live in there because it's and as well designed as it is, in no way does that help the families who used to live there. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. Uh, I, I agree. The Hope Six has been in, uh, it, well, I agree with that last sentence. The Hope Six has been an utter, okay, the Hope Six has been successful in developers making money. It has been successful in the decrease in true affordable housing, and it has been successful in uprooting communities and displacing people. However, um, what the Hope Six has done is uh, it has made it so that there are not enough units to house the 
people who need these. Public housing is a systematic way to house people who cannot afford market rate rent. I hear people say it should be a stepping stone. People should get in, get themselves together, and get out. Public housing is a way to provide housing for people who cannot afford to live in regular market rate rent. So this one-for-one replacement is a myth because when they come to a property and they tear it down and they do move that person, they either give them a voucher or they move them to another public housing property, you have taken a unit away from somebody that is on that waiting list. So there are still people kind of only focus on the people who are actually living in the units, but there are thousands of people on the list waiting to be housed. So when you move that person, you tear down a property, you tear down 400 units, you take those people, you scatter them, you either get some vouchers, and when you give the person that voucher, that is the one-for-one replacement? No, it's not, because you've taken away a unit in the stock for somebody else who couldn't live there. So the numbers have gone down. I mean, the numbers have gone up. So in 2000, in Washington, D.C., where we had about 20,000 people on the waiting list for housing, since nine properties have been torn down under Hope 6, the number is now 70,000, right, 13 that, that years is, later. That's discouraging in itself. But I, I, I wanted to know how, how do you propose that we fix it by, I mean, in view of the fact that the residents don't own their property, they're renting their property, and, and unfortunately that leaves them at the behest of whomever owns the property. Sometimes it's the government, sometimes it's their tenants. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw that question to Ms. Poindexter Moore first and then I wanna hear from my colleague Brandon as well as Dr. Alexander and, and, and Tristan. So but I wanna hear from you first, uh, Ms. Poindexter Moore, because you, you you have a passion about this and I will, I'm hoping that you have a remedy so we can transition the conversation to how we can make it better. Um, well, our, our answer is to preserve and repair and renovate public housing, not demolish it and tear it down. It's public land. It uses public money. And um, even though the owner is the government, we feel like that does not take away the rights of the residents. We pay rent. We live here. We raise families here. We have communities here. We have a vested interest. And... Because someone owns the property, because the government owns the property, does not mean that we should just be able to be kicked out and be at the behest of the government because we do have rights as tenants, not just as residents, but as tenants who pay rent. We do pay rent living in these, in these, uh, in these properties, on these public housing properties. So the same way if it's a private unit. Okay, so I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a place and the owner wants to sell. Um, I do have rights. As a tenant, you know, I have rights to purchase the property. I have first right of refusal. I have rights to come back. You know, I do have rights. So we as tenants living on the government's property have rights as well. And even if those rights are not recognized, then maybe they do need to be recognized more. You know, maybe we are asking to push legislation to recognize that we as tenants have a right to have control over our communities and not just be told what to do and take instructions. So that's our remedy is to preserve, renovate, renovate, repair public housing, and also to bring programs into our communities to deconcentrate, to effectively deconcentrate poverty. We're not saying we want to scatter poverty because the Hope 6, which is now called Choice, by the way, um, the Choice Neighborhood Initiative, 
doesn't deconcentrate poverty. It just masks it. It scatters it, and it just places it, but it still exists. So the way to actually deconcentrate it is to bring programs into our communities that will revitalize them so that we feel good about our communities, not divest in them like I has, like has been done over the years, but to actually bring some meaningful programs into our communities that prepare us to deconcentrate poverty and not only come when it's time to tear it down. They come off for jobs and home ownership stuff when it's time to tear down the place. Well, what about all this time I've been living here 15 years you never bought anything here? Right, but those services require funds. And if the city doesn't have a tax base from which to draw upon, those services that you're proposing won't be available because there'll be no funds for that. And I'm going to hand the mic over to my co-host, uh, Mr. Brandon Andrews. Brandon, I guess Brandon, that's it. Brandon, you still here with us? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. Okay. So I appreciate everyone's comments so far, and I didn't want to jump in too early because I wanted to allow the discussion to kind of mature a little bit. Uh, what I've heard is that, and I, and honestly, I've I've experienced that because I live in Washington. I've experienced this because I live in Washington D.C. What I've heard is that there are people. Um, in D.C. and elsewhere that want their piece of the American pie, et cetera. They want to be able to own a home, and many times their best option, if it's your first home, is a home that's in an area that, for various and sundry reasons, other people, it might not be at the top of other folks' lists. People in those communities, uh, when a developer comes in to convert their apartment over to a condo or when develop, new developments happen that raise the rent or raise the property value, take an issue with the property values rising because, unfortunately, in D.C., as in the rest of the nation, incomes have not been rising, especially for folks under a certain annual income. And so I don't think the, the answer or the solution is as easy as something that we can articulate, um, you know, even on this blog talk uh, discussion, unfortunately. I think the answer is, yes, programs are necessary to be able to help people mobilize uh, to help people mobilize as far as economic strategy is concerned. Yes, programs are necessary to ensure that developers are held accountable as they are uh, developing new properties, as they're converting apartments over to condos. Um, we need to do those two things. However, the real work that needs to be done is face-to-face -face meetings with the developers, and face-to-face -face meetings, more importantly, with affected um, renters or folks that live in affected communities um, to give them options. And now, this cuts both ways. Folks that are in the community have to be open, have to recognize the change is happening, and they have to be open to someone coming in and speaking to them about their 
financial well-being, about them having a place to live for themselves and for their children, about their income, et cetera. Uh, and then two, um, developers need to allow for that, for that time in their process um, as far as development is concerned uh, for it to be seen as even in terms of the development process for everyone. So the developers get what they need, you know, which is a newer place, an updated place that is going to get them the income they need to make um, to be in the black as far as the business is concerned. And then the folks in the community have to, in my opinion, um, get the one-on-one face-to-face counseling about financial management, about renting, uh, and about where they're at and where they're going, um, or it's not going to work. Because the thing is, we can institute all the government programs that we want, all the nonprofit, we can give grants to nonprofit organizations, and I'm sure they're doing a great job. But at the end of the day, if we don't have people that can go knock on the doors in these communities, talk to people face-to-face about where they're at and where they're going, talk to people about the change that's happening in their communities, and figure out what's best moving forward, then nothing will work policy-wise. We can pass as many pieces of legislation that are as well-intentioned as we want, but at the end of the day, if we don't have folks out there that understand the policy side and can go have those conversations with people, then there's really no point in uh, in passing legislation. Passing legislation will be great, and we'll have the standards out there, but as is the case with some of the nonprofit organizations that are doing work, as is the case with some of the statutes that are already on the books in the district and elsewhere, um, the folks that need the help won't be connected to the institution or institutions that have the help without those mediaries in the community. And so um, that's, that's, that's my suggestion for a solution. Whatever policy solution is proposed, and of course, you know, I can make suggestions for policy solutions, but I think this is more important. Whatever policy solution is proposed, we have to make provision for the organizers in the community that are going to be the grease to make the gears of the um, of the process turn. Does that make sense? This sounded like a true politician tonight, Brandon. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. So that's that's, so that's not my opinion. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All jokes aside, uh, we have a caller from a seven zero three number. Um, I think has a question, and we're going to try to give them an opportunity to, to ask a question if they want to ask a question at this time or have a comment. Sure. So, you know, My name is Richard, um, and I'm calling in. I'm actually a developer. I've done some development in D.C. I have uh, rental properties that I rent to the Housing Choice Voucher Program. I've worked with HUD Vash to rent to disabled veterans. Um, I have some experience working with DCRA and D.C. Housing, and uh, a lot of the things on the call, and I've had some real-world experience with. And so my question to the panel or to the callers is that everybody says, you know, gentrification problem or the developers need to do more. But, you know, I have property in some of these neighborhoods, and it's not necessarily a problem because a lot of the neighborhoods that are gentrified, the people's houses weren't taken. People sold 
their properties to allow them to be, you know, have a higher use or, or have a different use. And when I went in mixed-use communities where it's mixed income, the people, not just the white people, the African-American people, if I rent to someone with a voucher, will come to me and say, why did you rent to them? They're not about improving their position or improving their life. They're not going to make this neighborhood better. And so, you know, the problem from my standpoint is uh, something, I guess, that's more systemic. And how do you really approach fixing that? I know we have uh, some educators on the line. It seems like, you know, when the neighbors do talk to me, the things that they say are that some of the problems are that these people that come in that are in the lower income brackets aren't given the opportunities to get better jobs or, or to educate themselves to continue the improvements that are happening in the neighborhood that they're supportive of. Um, I wanna I wanna just uh just backtrack a bit. Um the city does have money to provide meaningful programs. The city is flush with money. The city has a surplus of money. And a surplus means flush and they've had a surplus over the last few years. So there is money in place to put meaningful programs. You know, living where I live, you know, we have programs that come and say, Oh, we have job training and and we have this and that and we're gonna, you know, help you get jobs but Nine times out of ten, one, the job is a temporary job, and two, the job is still not a job that's going to lift me up out of poverty. It's going to be a job where I'm still going to need a subsidy and I'm still going to have to have affordable housing. Um, now, what we what we believe is that you can still provide affordable housing and also provide programs so that people can take advantage of if they want to be, you know, if they don't want to rely on a subsidy, if they want to own a home, if they give us these programs, help us with these programs, but have the community involved in the program. Because a lot of times we have people come to us and tell us, this is what you need to do, this is what you're going to do, and this is what we say. And But there is no community plan around these programs that come into our city, so uh, come into our neighborhoods. So someone who... You know, I'm not going to really, some, I may not really participate in this program because I had no say in what the program was going to be or how could, it could help me. Oh. And that's what's missing oh. in a lot of things that happen in the city, even with uh, when it comes to low-income people, you know, very low-income people. You know, decisions are made for us, not with our involvement. Let, let me debunk a couple of myths real quick. A, you know, in terms of affordable housing, there are programs. I just think that they're very poorly advertised. Okay, which is which kind of speaks to Brandon's point and yours as well, Ms. Pondesters, that people don't know you've got to meet them where they are. Sort of like what uh, the you know Obama administration and HHS is doing with affordable care. They're meeting people where they are. They, the Navigators Program, in-person assisters, trying to help people where they are to get health care. That thing has to be done with housing as well, especially with housing. But let me also say that the mayor's already pledged to, to invest $100 million of this surplus that we spoke of, Ms. Pointexter, in affordable housing. Additionally, I'm thinking that that's not just some phony pledge to get reelected, but because he's got support from other members of the council, namely Ms. Anita Bonds and some of the other uh, untraditional supporters of the mayor and the council for this effort. And and today I, I read that they they passed a living wage of twelve fifty. So they're trying to help people afford to be to take advantage of these type of programs and to be much more of a contributor to the tax base as opposed to someone who's more of dependent. Uh but but let me let me speak to Richard's point. I appreciate you calling in very much. Uh because he's right. People in these gentrifying neighborhoods 
actually do appreciate the gentrification. Uh, and that's another situation we have to we have to grapple with. It's not a matter gentrification isn't bad. It's the effects, the negative effects particularly of gentrification that we have to deal with. That's displacing people and 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 again, this particularly affects those who are renting. So if we would have taken an approach with our affordable housing program or any other efforts to improve the diversity of our tax base and of our housing, uh, of, our, of our homeowners, I think that we have to look at things in a way that we promote a track to as opposed to a it's there, go get it if you want it kind of, kind of approach. If we're going to ask people to actively seek a job in order to earn a, an employment check, then why don't we say, okay, you know, if you want to own a home, we're going to put you on a track and we'll match X, Y, and Z as opposed to giving you one lump sum to help pay your closing costs when you get the money to buy a house. You put something down every month and we'll match it, so we're going to meet you there. It's a, as much as we do welfare to work, we're going to do, uh, you know, renting to ownership and a track process so that we kind of decrease this list of folks who are looking for temporary leave uh Temporary help and, and able to go in and, and actually afford a home. HUD does have a program. If I can just uh, HUD has a program that's similar to that that actually matches for matching, but I don't think that we're addressing the, the, the core issue of the displacement. Even if the resident decides that they want to 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 purchase in their community, they may not be able to afford that house that they're renting anymore. Because the, the the property values have gone up so much that they've been outpriced out of their own neighborhood. So I, no, I would like people, absolutely, and the people who there are people who I do hear say, you know, that they appreciate this gentrification, they they appreciate the change. But regardless of what someone says, there is always going to be a need for affordable, truly affordable housing. And this money that Mayor Gray did designate, we always ask, affordable for who? Because afford, there is no clear definition. Well, the clear definition of affordable housing is 30% of your income. But, and, and, and a certain percentage of, of the area median income. But, again, affordable in D.C. right now could mean somebody making $50,000. That, that's affordable. So there is not affordable for the most disenfranchised. You know, we believe that he's saying affordable for people who are with firefighters, the librarians, the affordability for working folks who even can't afford to live here anymore. Affordable for someone who with, who has no children, who has a, a, a $50,000 a year job, who only needs a studio apartment. You know, it's not being designated for people who have no money, very, very low income on the poverty line, or who have uh, government assistance, who have a lot of children, or or who, who for any reason, for someone who falls in that economic bracket, it's not it's not being clearly defined for affordability for people like that. If I may just go to that real quick, I want to make sure it may not be affordable. People like that are being pushed out, not included. <laughs> It, it, let's just be real. It's not going to be affordable in Georgetown. But, and to your point, uh, Stephen, if you're renting right now in a dilapidated neighborhood, you're not going to get priced out if you're making an effort to, to own that property. 
it's it's when it's too late, and that's where the education information that Brandon's talking about, I meet mean, people where they are, the grassroots efforts and push to make sure people know that, hey, development is coming. You know, Douglas Development just bought a property in your neighborhood, and it's worth $12 million. That means your home is going to be worth a lot more in, in two years to three years. Why don't you try to rent, right? And here's what you can do to do that. Additionally, these are, these are our neighborhoods if we're talking about race versus class. Georgetown, parts of Northwest, other parts of Fords 1 and 2, frankly, right now are, are just out of the question. It's just it's completely unaffordable. Even the affordable housing programs, as you said, Ms. Poindexter, are unaffordable. We're going out toward Northeast where that development push is happening. You can get ahead of that and be a benefactor. But these myths, these untruths about you can't because it's not there for you just can't be the case. People have to take advantage of what opportunity is there because demanding opportunity when it's gone but it's exactly what's going to be everyone. the case that happens. But See, for me, we, um, we want to look at numbers me. and trends. It's not going to happen that easily. It sounds nice. It sounds really good. But we have to look at reality. It's 70,000 people on the waiting list waiting for housing. It's 900 people in the homeless shelter at D.C. General. There's over 15,000 mm-hmm. homeless families in Washington, D.C. The numbers are there. The facts are there. And these people need homes. See, for me, so it would be nice the, if people could own. It would be nice if we all could own a home. It would be nice if we had the wherewithal to to be homeowners and to own our properties. I'm all for co-ops. I'm all for people managing and owning their own properties. But as of right now, in the crisis that we're in, we need to be the government needs to be held accountable for housing people here in DC. Taxpayers, just because the, I'm homeless the doesn't mean I don't pay only- taxes. And these private developers, but the, the, but as far as me as a taxpayer, you know, there needs to be programs in place to house the, the people in our city who have nowhere to live. And those programs need to be expanded. But at the same time, at the same very time, the, the government nor the private developers are the only stakeholders in this, in this process. And you said yourself, housing is a birthright. That means people need to demand to own a home as opposed to saying, I don't have a place to stay, so give me a place to stay. I Empower mean, people. Yes, no, it's, it's all good because it's, it's a great conversation. Um, you know, for me, the the, the concern is uh, deals more with what Brandon was was hitting on earlier, which is, um, and which is what I meant with my opening statement, where I'm more concerned about the social ties within the community and how do you educate and that sort of thing. Um, I I. I agree that there's a, there's an important point to be made here related to affordable housing, um, but what I think um, is 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 a good example of this is the Capers project down in D.C. Um, when that uh, was torn down and so forth. Uh, I remember uh, uh, teaching swimming at the Arthur Caper pool years ago and watching that community go through its transition. And the piece that really uh, disturbed me was the fact that um, we're not uh, at the risk of sounding too academic, as a sociologist, we would call it, we're not filling in a structural hole. Within each community, you have these social ties that make the community uh, a close-knit community, um, and without filling in what we would call the structural hole between the middle class that may be moving in and the lower class that are currently 
uh, residing there, that becomes the, uh, the important piece for me because whether or not someone can afford the home or not and whether or not, um, as Richard the caller um, made a point, they sold their home, to what degree are we just simply displacing knowledge? So when, a, when someone moves or stays in a community, they still could be without the knowledge of how to manage the home or to even manage the finances to take advantage of the program that Tristan is talking about and any other programs that may exist as well. So for me, while, um, while the affordability of housing is certainly a key point, um, and, I, and I would agree that there's an, over, an overrepresentation of homelessness uh, in D.C., I would also agree that there are programs, and I know some as well, and I would agree that they're not marketed very well. That's the knowledge piece. That's the failure of not filling the structural hole between those that need to know and those that already know. And that's a, that's a serious concern for me when it comes to this topic. Thank you, sir. I have a question for the group, uh, and particularly the way I've been doing it, I've been doing ladies first, but we can flip that and we're going to do with, uh, we can go from conservative to more liberal. Um, even with the whole six prime, uh, project, when they have mixed-income communities, um, oftentimes there's a marketplace, I mean, a market-value home right next to or close to an subsidized home, but they are different. Like, the market home has all the amenities that you expect that you would pay for, like the, the granite, uh, tabletops, the stainless steel, refrigerators, and sometimes they have a balcony or whatever, but the subsidized home right next to it or right close to it doesn't have a lot of those same things. So the poor, although they're still in a gentrified or a mixed-income neighborhood, they're still stigmatized. How can we address that, or is it something that should be addressed, or is it a matter of merit? Should I have as much home that I can afford? And I'm going to start with ladies first and just move from there, so I'm going to start with Ms. Um, Poindexter Moore, please. Um, this, uh, first of all, when they come into a public housing community and say we're going to convert it to a mixed income, we already live in a mixed income community. It may not be on a high end income, but we have people in, right now in my community, I live in public housing, there are people in this community that work. There are some that don't work. There are some that have their own business. There are all types of different incomes in our community already. Um, Second of all, when you do take a person out of traditional public housing and you put them into a mixed income, I have heard testimony on the record from people who say they feel more isolated because the higher income people don't want to associate with the the subsidized people. They do get more amenities, and you feel more, you know, even though you live in the same community, but you see you don't get the same things. You're not able to have a, uh, a resident council like before. You have no official representation. The homeowners have a tenant association, and uh, the, the renters have their association. But there's nothing that the public housing, quote, unquote, the public housing people have that represents them. And I've heard this testimony. So you do feel more isolated, and you do feel more like you stand out. You feel you, I'm, you haven't deconcentrated poverty. I'm still living in poverty. I still have a subsidy. But now I'm, it's thrown in my face even more that this person across the street driving an SUV and who works that turns their nose at me 
or I see that they have access to the amenities on the property that I don't have access to, you know, this rub-off effect does not work. It's a myth. Because I live next door to somebody who works does not make me say, oh, my life is better because you live next door to me. That's highly disrespectful to me. This mixed income does not work. All it does is profit greedy developers and displaces people and flashes affordable housing. So with that said, what what are the solutions to that? Preserve the existing properties. Instead of demolishing them, preserve them. Don't divest, invest in them. You know, keep what we have, build more. Build more, not tear down. That's the answer uh, that we believe works to make sure that displacement doesn't happen, that displacement does not happen, and that the affordable housing units are not flashed, and that gentrification does not happen. Revitalize my community for the people that are already here. Revitalize, repair, renovate, invest in the community for the people that have been living here, the original residents, and if you want to bring some other folks in, bring them in, but I shouldn't have to get out for somebody else to come in. I think I maybe understood the question to be a little bit different, more more to the point of why don't um, affordable homes look the same as market-valued homes, right? Right. Right, and and as much as I agree with Ms. Pointex, I mean, you know, when you own something nice, it's empowering, but when you own something that's not as nice as some, your neighbors, it's like, oh, okay, you know, and it makes it very difficult to coexist sometimes. Um especially given, you know, potential for tension uh, in, a, in a gentrifying, a, a transient neighborhood. But I, I'll say I've had a conversation with with uh, a major developer in, in D.C. I just asked him straight up because I was curious. I was like, you know, if, if you're building a property, you're a developer, you're building a property, why shortcut the affordable units, the ADUs, the affordable dwelling units, uh, versus the market value units? Like, just... Like why? Like why did why make a difference? You know, and the flat up, straight up answer was, we not making any money off of it. So putting that kind of money into it doesn't make any kind of financial sense. And obviously, as a developer, as a you know someone who's in business, it makes perfect sense. So you ask yourself, like, who is representing the interests of the low income? renter, owner, uh, you know, family, like who's representing that interest really, you know, with dollar signs saying, you know what, I'm gonna put this on it so that we can we can all we can all have the same same look. I mean, because Miss Poindexter I think has a great point, you know, uh and, and frankly, new urbanism, I don't know if you guys had a chance to just really read up on the concept of new urbanism, but Promoting walkable neighborhoods, really beautiful living, is not something that should be only afford, afforded to the wealthy communities. I mean, truthfully, I, I've, I've, we've all heard those stories about the back in the day when things were okay, but when the projects came along, it's like all of that withered and died, and it was just about having something good enough to keep people from, I don't know, being on the streets. <laughs> Yeah, I don't understand. Uh, you, you, you know, you know what's funny. Um, so uh, I live in a community um, at, that uh, 
I would be perceived as uh, by some as the gentrifier. So I move into the community that uh, we have brand new townhomes and so forth. The comical piece, almost comical, is that there's the assumption, and I think we should be a little careful, that uh, that the middle class that may be moving in with the brand new homes, that they're not getting cheated. I know plenty of people in my neighborhood that know that the developers cut several corners, and when there was an opportunity for um, the uh, the so-called lower income families to uh, to move into the homes, because you offer a percent uh, to a uh, percent of the uh, of the new of the new homes to them as well, some of them said no. Our homes are made of better quality, and now, so taking a taking a stab at a positive to the gentrified area, those lower-income homes have now, um, I have to check the numbers on this to truly confirm it, maybe someone on the phone has it, um, but have now reaped the benefits of other developments that may have increased their property value. And, and, in, and in this interesting case, there weren't really many people that were actually displaced. What was displaced was the school system. So as I'm a middle, middle classer, and versus the so-called lower classer, we're now in mixed community living together, and we're having to face the exact same problem and issue, which is that our school just got closed. <clears throat> to me, that adds an interesting dynamic to the dialogue as well in terms of the, uh, the, the issues of living in a mixed community. But I think we should also be careful not to always assume that those that are, uh, could be perceived as the gender fire are actually getting a fair shake as well or a better deal. Because in my community, that's not the case. You know, to that point, I'll say this because it's my own personal experience. I was perceived as a gentrifier, though I'm African-American, perceived to be a gentrifier because I wasn't a long-term resident. I mentioned this in my opening remarks. But the only difference is we're all, frankly, you know, in my neighborhood, virtually working poor. Uh, was that I had an opportunity to take advantage of an opportunity. <laughs> and and that's the only difference. Uh, so I agree. And it doesn't, you're absolutely right, Dr. Alexander. It does not necessarily mean that the so-called gentrifier is, you know, somehow a true benefactor um, of anything. Actually, that's probably a, a great segue to close in, in, in your agreement with Dr. Alexander. Uh, it was actually really great to have you all here. I know it was a quick hour, and the, the discussion was still getting um, wound up. <laughs> um, but we're going to close here. I want to thank you all for joining us, even um, our caller, Richard, which we uh, didn't expect, but we were glad to hear his feedback from the uh, developers. Um, perspective. I also want to tell everyone to make sure that you hit up our Facebook page at In My Opinion TV to um, engage in additional discussions and also to find out more information about our launch event, which is July the 16th, and also for our next show and the launch of our television program. Again, I want to thank you all for joining us on in my opinion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, thanks everybody.